This is an ABC podcast. Hello from David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. And another episode where we take a close look at a philosophical fragment or aphorism. Because philosophy mostly comes to us these days wrapped up in a book or a grand system of thought or even a whole tradition. But then there are those catchy little sayings that somehow get out into the world on their own, and they can often take on a very interesting, independent existence. The one we're looking at today comes from Simone de Beauvoir, who published her most famous book, The Second Sex, in 1949. That's a pioneering feminist classic that contains the following much-quoted line, One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. And when I think about that statement, I immediately start thinking about contemporary transgender issues. But of course, the whole transgender debate was not a hot topic in 1949. And I find myself wondering how Simone de Beauvoir would have felt about being roped into it. I also find myself thinking about the familiar distinction between sex and gender that's been so foundational to so much feminist philosophy and wondering again if that's what Beauvoir was getting at. Well, helping me out this week is Torrell Moy, who's Professor of Literature and Philosophy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. The Second Sex, which was published in France in two volumes in 1949, the first volume was in, I think, May and the second in November, was utterly unique. There was no book like it then, and there wasn't to be one for... 30 years, 25 years, when the new women's movement really erupted in France were around 1968-70. So what inspired Simone de Beauvoir? I think there were two things. She was, interestingly enough, a woman who never felt that she had been discriminated against as a woman. In her diaries in the 1920s, when she's a young, brilliant student at the Sorbonne University, she writes, I don't feel that I am a woman, I am me. She feels she's a human being in the world and the world is open to her and she can forge ahead. So that's what she thinks in the 1920s. Then we fast forward, the Second World War happens, fascism arises in Europe, Beauvoir lives under the Nazi occupation of France, and when they emerge from the occupation, the French intellectuals are chastened and rather much more aware of the fact that social and historical uh, phenomena really make a difference to a a human being's life. So what happens is that Beauvoir wants to write her autobiography. She says to Sartre, uh, she says, I want to write about myself. And Sartre says, well, Simone, shouldn't you look into the fact that you were born a woman? And Beauvoir answered, well, I'm not sure that matters. I mean, I've never been discriminated against. I, you know, I could study and do all these things. So I'm not sure that's relevant. And then Sartre says, well, all the same, you weren't brought up in the way a boy would have been. I think you should look into it. So then Beauvoir pauses in her memoirs and says, well, I thought, Mark, maybe he has a point. I went off to the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris and started reading up on myths about women. 
And I was blown away. I realized that I was born into a man's world that I had in no way had the same treatment opportunities as a man. And I sat, put aside the project for a memoir and started writing The Second Sex. And it's from The Second Sex that we have this, this insight, this resonant uh, aphorism, if you like, that one is not born but rather becomes a woman. And we'll get onto the history of interpretation of that phrase in a minute because that's an interesting story in itself. But first of all, what exactly is Beauvoir saying here? One is not born but rather becomes a woman. The idea is, first of all, that woman, and of course man, but she isn't writing about men for once. I mean, the whole of philosophy is full of men who use men as examples. But the idea is that we are creatures in constant becoming. And the idea that you try to impose on women a fixed notion of femininity is to freeze them into a kind of static object instead of accepting that women like men are constantly making something of what the world makes of them. There's an endless sort of pulsating becoming in every human being that Beauvoir calls existence. And can you speak a little bit more about the the normative version or the, the patriarchal version of femininity that Beauvoir is referring to? What, what's she arguing against? So when one reads the second sex, she uses the term femininity femininity, over and over again. And it takes a bit of focus to see that what she means by that is not just anything to do with women. She is constantly arguing against it and showing how oppressive it is. But we have to bear in mind that what she means by femininity in all those passages is something that today we could call patriarchal femininity, or we could call it sexist ideology about what women should be like. That's what she means when she says that femininity is a straitjacket. She doesn't mean that to be born a woman is a straitjacket. She means that when you are born and someone says, oh, it's a girl, then the gaze of the other is starting a long process which consists in imposing, quotes, femininity, which we should translate as patriarchal femininity. So that process begins at birth. As soon as someone recognizes your body as female, rightly or wrongly, it's not really about biology, it's that someone takes you to be a girl child and then the process begins. So when Beauvoir writes about becoming a woman and and femininity, what sort of distinction is she making between biological essence and social construction? Is this what we would today understand as the distinction between sex and gender or is it something different? The first thing we need to realise is that the modern sex-gender distinction was only shaped and came to the fore in the 1960s in Anglophone societies. American psychiatrists and doctors really shaped that distinction. So when Boba is writing in 1949 and she's writing in French, obviously she cannot have had the contemporary sex-gender distinction in mind. But one might argue she could still have been thinking in those terms. And I think that you will find 
endless numbers of quick overviews of Beauvoir's work, which claim the following. When Beauvoir says one is not born, but rather becomes a woman, she means to draw the distinction between biology and social construction or between sex and gender. And I think that's actually wrong. It's anachronistic and it doesn't help us to see what Beauvoir is actually doing. Instead of drawing that distinction between sex, meaning pure biology, and gender that tends to mean social norms and sometimes personal gender identity, she is actually interested in bodies and subjectivity and in ideologies, which is, as you can hear already, totally different terms. And central to the book is her insight that the body is a situation. I'm really interested in your take on that because you have written about how this insight, apart from just being fascinating in and of itself, can offer some helpful correctives to contemporary feminism, which which has gone down a few blind alleys in, in, your, in your view. Let's talk about that and, and just beginning with what Beauvoir means when, when she writes that the body is a situation. What the situation is, this is sort of almost technical existential philosophy. For the existentialist, the French existentialist, a situation is a kind of synthesis of consciousness. Now, my mind, if you like, consciousness for them was always free. There's a kind of element of freedom in my own consciousness, the freedom to project myself into new projects and actions. So on the one hand, you have consciousness. On the other hand, you have what Sartre calls facticity, the factness of things in the world. So you can see already with that setup, But a situation is the synthesis of those two. So instead of having mind here and the body as a thing over there, the body is the embodiment of my consciousness. It's a factual thing in the world that I have to take into account in my life. But at the same time, it's not reducible in my lived experience to a mere thing. We don't feel about our hand as if it were the cup of coffee we're holding in it. Right. And so does this then speak to what you were talking about earlier, where we were talking about how Beauvoir is not making a distinction which can be reducible to the distinction between sex and gender? Because the 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 understanding of sex and gender is often that sex is biological, sex is is sort of a, a natural law, where gender is is concerned with the the human production of meaning. But when Beauvoir says the body is a situation, she's really collapsing that distinction. That there's a sort of a an ambiguity there where the, the body is subjective and objective at the same time. Is that is that part of what she's getting at? Yeah, that, that's actually really a good way into it. So if the traditional, but remember, the sex-gender distinction was worked out later, so we Boa couldn't even have related to it. But if that later sex-gender distinction, that has a huge problem, which is that sex, when sex is reduced to the body, it doesn't take many steps in theory before people start reducing it to things like chromosomes and hormones. And then if a human being is seen as the combination of sex plus gender, then suddenly you have transformed the rest of the body, the body that lives and walks and talks into gender. 
So when you start reading feminist theory, you realize that the way they use the term sex and the term gender is actually quite unstable and emigrates and changes a lot over the decades. So, but I won't go into that. I will just say that for Beauvoir, the body as an object, that's the concept that's the closest to sex. But to look at the body as an object it's not always wrong. Like if you're a scientist and you want to understand how cancer propagates in the human body, you'd better consider the molecules and the cells as objects. You're not going to ask about their lived experience, right? So the idea then is that to see the body as an object can be legitimate and useful for certain purposes, but it's useless when it comes to understand the meaning and value of a human life. So Bobo's theory is that the body as a situation is the starting point for what she calls our lived experience. I go out in the world and my body produces certain responses in the world. They treat me as being in this category or that category. And as a result, I respond to that. Now, I have some examples that will help us to understand this. One example is simply this. The body, if we think of the body as situation, you don't have to think just about the gendered body or the sex body. Think of what it means to, for example, having to use a wheelchair or being of a minority race in a country. That's also a situation that falls under the umbrella of the body as a situation. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week, Toral Moy. She's written widely on feminist theory in general and Simone de Beauvoir in particular. And this week, we're talking about one of Beauvoir's most quoted claims, that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Well, let's take another look at this um, insight that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman, because it has a lot of resonance for anyone who's reading some of the work that came out of the 90s from um, uh, feminists like Judith Butler. But it's a statement that you say has been misunderstood by these feminists. And, and let's let's talk about them. I mean, they get grouped together under the banner of post-structuralist feminism, which I think in some ways is an unfortunate uh, rubric, but let's go with it. Um, in, in what ways do these feminists misunderstand Beauvoir, in your view? Well, first of all, I want to commend Judith Butler, who's a great thinker, for actually, before she wrote Gender Trouble, she wrote an article about Beauvoir's The Second Sex, Sex and Gender in Simone de Beauvoir. And I will say, for shorthand, if you see what Butler's doing in Gender Trouble, it's a kind of mixture of Beauvoir's existentialism, when it's not born, but rather becomes a woman, as Butler says, you know, it's when the child is born that someone says it's a girl that what she calls then the girling of the girl begins. That's straight out of Beauvoir, right? Oh, it could be. 
And then you have, on the other hand, in Butler, a huge influence by Michel Foucault, which means that she finds it very difficult to acknowledge that there are acting subjects in the world. Butler wants to see the subject, the mind, the human being as an effect of power. That's Foucault, and that's not at all Beauvoir and Sartre. They're certainly into analyzing power, but not in quite in that way. So what happens in in that kind of feminism is that they begin with the sex-gender distinction. So anachronistically, they project it back to Beauvoir. But the sex-gender distinction encourages you to think of sex as mere sort of scientific facts about chromosomes and hormones. And then gender becomes everything else. And so because this distinction, in my opinion, is a very bad theory of what a human being of any sex is, it then produces its own theoretical problems. And the theoretical problem that comes up is, well, how can I even talk and say the word woman without falling into biological determinism? And that's the term we should say Simone de Beauvoir and I and Butler, we all agree that biological determinism, which is the faith that your biology determines your human capacities, choices and values, we all agree that that's a terrible theory. Modern feminism started in opposition to that belief. So no one's going to go back to that. But the problem that the post-structuralists get is that they think, that once you've split sex from gender, you really have a problem because now sex is this inert, almost invisible chromosomal something and gender becomes discursive, historical, social. So then the next problem they get is, well, surely I can't believe they think that sex is so, that nature is totally like outside everything that has to do with gender. So then you start declaring that, oh, sex is matter and matter is an effect of power and power is discursive and voila, now you have somehow managed to get to the point where sex and gender are now one yet again, except now they are all discursive and now you then persuade yourself that everyone who talked about sex before Butler are talking about essences and biology as determining the human being. And so this, to my mind, is super confusing because that's not the case. Simone de Beauvoir is using the word sex and because she wrote earlier, so is Virginia Woolf, and they're not using it in this very, what can I say, theoreticist sense at all. So although this sounds very complicated, I just think that the very sex-gender distinction, which is super useful when it comes to opposing biological determinism, just produced a ton of extraordinary theoretical complexity that is of its own making, as it were. So is what you're saying there that feminists in, in the vein of Judith Butler, are they take biological sex to be a problem that requires a solution or at least a radical rethinking, whereas Beauvoir doesn't take this approach. Beauvoir is quite comfortable in saying that a, a woman can be defined with reference to her 
primary and secondary sexual characteristics, but that that has no necessary uh, political or social consequences. Is, is that the difference there? Yeah, I mean, you can say, I think that's getting very close to it. I think the way I read Beauvoir, there's clearly space there for saying that there are intermediate and unclear cases. Simone de Beauvoir doesn't think that it's biology itself that has any specific social consequences. She thinks of biology much more like an anthropologist. You know, think about it this way. The fact that human bodies are as they are shapes human society. That, that's an anthropological fact. You know, people talk about the opposable sum. Well, if we didn't have opposable sums, we couldn't grasp things. We couldn't hold on. We wouldn't have the same grip on things, right? It doesn't make much sense to talk about biological essentialism or biological determinism if all you think is that, well, the human body gives the parameters for the possibilities we can have, because that's just true. What's not true is the idea that the specific biological setup to do with reproduction lays down limits for what the values of that human being is supposed to be. Beauvoir, though, is still committed to two biological sexes. And I wonder if you see a, a limit there, because for later feminist theorists like Butler, but there are many others, there could be more than two biological sexes. We could have any number of sexes calibrated along a sliding scale between male and female. And this is often put forward as a very liberating notion in any society where gender roles are determined by biology. What's your take on that? Is that a helpful direction for feminism to be taking, do you think? Well, I think that what unites all feminists on that line, Butler and Beauvoir and myself and whatever, is the sense that what we are against is the idea of two simplistic ideological straitjackets. Call them the ideology of femininity and the ideology of masculinity, right? That, and, but you will notice that people like Butler and a lot of modern feminists always posit a super conservative gender norm. Like the gender norm is that all women are maternal, they want to get married, they are heterosexual and blah, 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 and something similar for men, no doubt. But I think that if you deny that biology can ground social norms, then it doesn't really matter how many sexes you think there are. I believe that the biological facts, in fact, show, as far as we understand now, that there is a sliding scale in terms of hormones, chromosomes, intermediate sex organs, and all these things. There is no such thing as the purely masculine maleness and the purely feminine femaleness, even on, in biology. But how liberating is it to say, in fact, I can now look at the biology and find 10 sexes? That only makes sense if you think that you need to ground your values in, in biology. I am open to any number of slippery sliding biological scales, but I think the struggle we have is against any kind of gender norms. Anyone who comes and tells me, I take you to be a woman, 
doesn't matter what my biology is if they believe I'm a woman and I will hold you to my norms of femininity. That's where we're going to have to oppose them. Well, I just have one final question and this is this phrase, one is not born but rather becomes a woman read in the light of contemporary debates around sex and gender would, would, would seem to gesture in the direction of transsexual experience. You know, one can be born a boy but become a woman later in life. This, as far as I know, wasn't a live debate in the late 1940s. What might Beauvoir's perspective have to contribute to the work of understanding it and normalising transsexual experience today? Well, first of all, in my long essay about this, I have quite a few examples from what was then called transsexual experience. I now believe that the more common way of talking about it is transgender experience. And I should make it very clear that I have no... I'm happy to say transgender or transsexual since I think that we overestimate the sex-gender distinction here. But what can Beauvoir help us with? Well, first of all, I understand that part of the intense debate here among feminists has been some kind of rather, to my mind, outlying feminist trends, which consist in declaring that transgender people or transsexuals aren't women. And this is, of course, exceedingly hostile and denigrating to people who have taken that long journey from beginning as a boy child and becoming a woman. Now, if Beauvoir thinks one is not born but rather becomes a woman, her whole idea is that there isn't one type of womanness or femininity. You never need to prove your true femininity. We all become the women we are, as it were, in our own specific way. Me growing up in Norway turned me into a woman that's probably different from if I'd grown up in Australia. In the same way, if someone begins the path in life as being recognized by others as a boy and then figures out that they'd rather be a woman, that person at some point has the right to say, I am a woman. But we need to drop the idea that to say, I am a woman, is to say, oh, and I'm just like all the other women. Now I'm conforming to gender norms. No woman, however their body, should have to do that. My view is that a transgender or transsexual person has become a woman in a very specific way. It's been probably a long and difficult journey. Those experiences shape her sense of what it means to her to be a woman. Her lived experience won't be exactly the same as mine, but no woman's lived experiences are the same as some other woman's. This is also true for women of different races and nationalities. And so I think Beauvoir, if she lived today, would be totally open to the idea that there are many roads to becoming a woman. And the woman you become is always in future and further becoming. Uh, To be a woman is not to be a static concept defined by traditional norms. It is to shape oneself actively and interacting with the world. And I think Beauvoir is super useful here. 
Toral Moy, Professor of Literature and Philosophy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. More info on the website, including publication details of some of Toral Moy's work on Simone de Beauvoir. And of course, you can listen to any and all of our past programs via the ABC Listen app or wherever you prefer to source your podcasts. And this has been The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. You can find me on Twitter at David P. Zone. And I hope you can join me again next week. Bye for now. Bye for now.